Would you join with me as we turn to the word of the Lord in a time of prayer? We cry out to you, Father, because we need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand, have a clear sense, and see the usefulness, the application of your word. This is also a time of worship, so Lord, may we be confronted with your glory, our sin, the sufficiency of grace, and how you want to renew us and use us in the world. Father, thank you that because you love us, you've spoken to us, you've given us your word that's true, that's inerrant, that is trustworthy. And so now we humbly ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts and shape us in the power of the Holy Spirit, molding us according to your word. Grant your word success in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. This morning out of Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 53 and reading down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 72. Friends, let's worship God by hearing the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, and the elders, and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Please be seated. And so continues one of the saddest commentaries on the human condition as we continue to move nearer to the cross. Jesus has been seized. He's been arrested after Judas, one of his faithful followers, one of the twelve, betrayed him. 
And as we draw ever closer to the cross, we see Jesus in his humanity, vulnerable and alone, facing trial at kind of this kangaroo court at the hands of the Jewish ruling council, a council known as the Sanhedrin, and the fulfillment of what Jesus had just earlier predicted and foretold, that Peter would deny him. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we've been saying that the Gospel of Mark can easily be divided into two halves. That chapters 1 through 8 ask and answer the question, who is Jesus? Looking at Jesus' character, his personality, who he is. And the second half, chapters 9 through 16, focus on what did this Jesus, what did this one who is king, what did he come to do? And the answer is he came to die for us and for our sins. And one of the things that we recognize is that all of this, every detail of the story was according to the divine plan. That nothing was outside the complete sovereignty of God. And this morning as we go through this narrative on Jesus' final night, again humanly speaking on the earth, before he goes to the cross, we see two things. We learn two things from this particular text about the divine plan. One we learn is that the divine plan is power in weakness. Does it not amaze you? Let me ask you this question, just kind of as I present this outline before we actually dive into the text. When somebody verbally assaults you, somebody attacks you, somebody is arguing with you, what's the very first thing we like to do? I'll go. I get defensive. Don't you want to defend yourself? Does it not amaze you that Jesus, who we know is almighty, sovereign, preeminent God, remains steadfastly silent as he's being questioned, interrogated, falsely accused, as an injustice is being done, what do we see? We see the divine plan expressed in power, in weakness. And then as we get to Peter, the second part of the text, verses 66 to 72, we see the divine plan is power in failure. I appreciated part of, I appreciated the whole of Rick's Sunday school lesson, but it's only part of it that I'm going to emphasize right now. We were talking, uh, Rick, I really did appreciate the whole of the lesson. <laughs> I'm starting to feel guilty up here. But I only want to emphasize one thing. <laughs> we were talking about the sovereignty of God. And do you recognize that God, while not being the author of our sin, is sovereign over our sin? Which means our failure never catches him off guard. It's, it's not like, you know, think of this, I wonder sometimes what we think, you know, we experience pride or we're going down the road and we kind of get a little angrier than we should or, you know, maybe like me, you're, you're in line at the Publix or something, you get a little impatient, you know, and those are my nice sins. Those are, you know, those are the friendly, socially acceptable sins. You know, do we think any of that catches God off guard? Like he goes, oh, Jeff, I didn't see that coming, you know. Wow, I thought you had matured a little bit more than that. Today's your 56th birthday. I thought maybe you grew up a little bit. I'm so surprised at you. Nothing catches God off guard. He's not only is he, and I guess a double negative is not good English, but I'll use it anyway. Not only is he not surprised at your sin, but he uses, do you recognize your failure as part of the divine plan? That is, your failure is what he is using to teach you about his grace and mercy so that you turn to his grace and mercy and you grow through that. I think the way Paul wrote it up in the book of Romans is that it is his kindness 
that leads us to repentance. I think sometimes we think it's God being real hard on us. You know, if we get embarrassed enough, if we have some good old-fashioned shame, that'll get us to finally get our acts together and we'll repent. That is not how the gospel works. That is not how God works. It is his kindness that humbles us, that breaks us. One of the things we're going to learn as we look at the divine plan is failure is when Peter remembers Jesus' words that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, there's a difference between knowing your sin and being broken over your sin. The text tells us he broke down and he wept. What plunges our hearts into grace is not just knowing your sin. We're good Calvinists in this room. You know, tulip, the first letter is T, right? Total depravity, we all know that. You do recognize there's a difference between knowing your sin and being broken over your sin. The divine plan is failure. Let's look, first of all, the divine plan is power and weakness. Now, here's where we left off. Jesus is now alone. After his arrest, he's led. John 18, I'll bring in some of the parallel accounts. John 18 says the first stop was at a man's house by the name of Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of this year's high priest, a man by the name of Caiaphas. Mark just basically, Mark skips over the Annas part. And they go right to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas was the high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 37. And there they are waiting for them, the Jewish ruling council. They were known as the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men that are made up of three types of people, chief priests, elders, and scribes. Verse 54 tells us, and you have to recognize, because I think so often we read things like they're all chronological accounts. So first we have... Jesus before Caiaphas, then we have Peter's denial. No, Jesus is upstairs at Caiaphas' house. Down below in the courtyard, verse 54 says, and these two things are happening simultaneously. At the same time, Peter is making himself comfortable. It's cold outside. He's warming himself at the fire, and he happens to be denying Jesus. At the same time, Jesus is a victim of injustice before this kangaroo court. As verse 53 tells us, the Sanhedrin is made up of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that it was primarily these groups which made up the Jewish ruling council, and that is led by the high priest. The chief priests included those who were formerly high priests. The elders were from the most influential lay families in Jerusalem, primarily made up of wealthy landowners. And these two groups... The chief priests and the elders were basically the old ruling class in Jerusalem, and they were largely at this time theologically from the sect known as the Sadducees. The other group is the scribes. They're the lawyers made up largely from the sect of the Pharisees, and they are more the primarily the middle class. Now, verse 53 tells us that as Jesus is seized and arrested, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Mark's telling us exactly what their motive was, exactly what they were going after. They were looking for a way to be able to send Jesus because they couldn't execute, they couldn't, they didn't have the capital punishment, that was up to the Romans, but they wanted a way that they could themselves condemn him to death, say he deserves that, send him to, sentence him to death, and send him to the Roman governor, Pilate, which is exactly what happens. The very first thing they did was to call witnesses together. And the text tells us that these, false, these witnesses bore false witness against them and that their testimony did not agree. 
Now I want you to notice something. The, text, the fact that the witnesses did not agree shows us that the Sanhedrin, they, were not, they, they weren't resolved to bring justice to the fact. Even as they're accusing Jesus of stating that he would destroy the temple, even in this, their testimony did not agree. And notice that they had, you ever notice that they didn't wait two weeks or three weeks for a trial. Here's Jesus arrested and immediately, there's witnesses ready to go. At the high priest's house, there was an urgency with which they wanted to condemn Jesus. Now look with me what happens next. Here they bring these witnesses together. Their testimony doesn't agree. You've kind of got this chaotic kangaroo court going on. So now what happens is the high priest Caiaphas, he kind of takes over. Verse 60 says, The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And I love this. Jesus remained silent and made no answer. There's Jesus, not defending himself, not vindicating himself, depending on the Father and trusting himself to the Lord, depriving the court from using their already gathered evidence against him. So now, what does Caiaphas do? He asks directly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Look at what he's doing here. He's going, do you claim to be the Messiah? One commentator put it this way, he says, in Mark's account, the question appears to provide the climax to the proceedings. The impression is inescapable that the success or failure of the conspiracy on the part of the Sanhedrin to secure Jesus' death depended upon the response which follows. If Jesus answered affirmatively, they've won their case. If he replied negatively, they must discover some new strategy. So picture this. It all comes down to this. It's almost like you're watching a football game. And you know at the end of the football game, the announcer might say, here it is, final play of the game. It all comes down to this. It's kind of like he's telling you, don't go to the refrigerator and get a snack now. It's all coming down to this. This is kind of... This is where it's coming to a crescendo. We are at the climactic moment. How will Jesus answer? Caiaphas is putting to him straight out, are you the Messiah? And look at how Jesus answers. Two words, I am. Now, these words are significant, not only because he's claiming to be the Messiah, but now put on your Old Testament thinking caps. Come on, biblical scholars, work with me here. What do those words remind you of when somebody says, I am? Where have you heard that before? That comes from Exodus chapter 3, when God was raising up a man by the name of Moses to lead his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And Moses is questioning him. He's asked, you know, so if the people ask me, who shall I say sent me? What is his name? Who are you? As the Lord is revealing himself in the burning bush, and what is the name that is given? I will be who I will be, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Jesus is taking the divine name upon himself. This is the new exodus. This is God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the sent one, liberating his people, bringing them out of a deeper slavery, the slavery to sin and death and hell, and liberating them from that. 
And Jesus not only says, I am, but then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That is almost a direct allusion, a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. I am the son of man that all nations, languages, and people will come and worship and serve. And that this Caiaphas has had enough. He tears his garments, he tears his robes, symbolically indicating his view that Jesus' utterance was indeed blasphemous. And of course, not only Caiaphas, but the entire ruling council would be familiar with the law of Moses. So for example, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, that says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. Here's the sentence. Jesus stood condemned. The one who doesn't deserve death. The one who lived perfectly. The one who, though tempted in every way, yet was without sin, stands under the sentence of legal condemnation. Do you not see this is power, ultimate power? This is the right hand and holy arm of God working through weakness, through vulnerability. And who does he stand condemned to die for? People like you and me. And Peter. Let's get to Peter. Because meanwhile, down in the courtyard, look with me at verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. For you are a Galilean. But now he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The divine plan is power in failure. I think so often we think that what growth looks like is kind of this straight line. You know, I'm I'm drawing closer to the Lord. I'm getting closer to the Lord. We fail to see that God's plan, He works so much more in us in our failure than He does in our success. You know, I want to be fair here in understanding and our characterization of Peter this morning. I want to be obviously true to the text but also treat Peter with some humanity. Let's remember that everything we've been looking at occurred on the same evening. Okay, let's remember the timing of here. 
They had a final meal together. They had the Last Supper. Remember, Jesus instituted the Last Supper. If you go through John chapter 13 to John chapter 17, you had Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He was teaching, giving them kind of leadership training. I think theologians call it the upper room discourse, teaching them about the Holy Spirit. You had Jesus' predicting both Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, along with Peter's vehement protest that he would never fall away or not be loyal to Jesus, even if it meant going to prison or dying with Jesus. Now here's where I want to be fair and give some understanding to Peter's humanity here. Okay? Because there's a lot we don't know. But here's what we do know. We know that Peter really does love Jesus. Really does desire to be faithful and loyal to him. He is sincere. We also know that Peter would have had the background of the Old Testament. Okay? Peter would have been very familiar with the revelation of God's word and the acts, the supernatural miracles and the events of the Old Testament. Peter would be familiar with the Exodus. He would know the plagues. He'd be familiar with the crossing of the Red Sea. He would know the conquest of the promised land, God's miracle at battles like Jericho. So I want you, humanly speaking, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. Did he not have certain messianic expectations of what the coming of the Messiah would be? Can you imagine what Peter's level of disappointment and disillusionment when he sees Jesus bound and arrested? When he witnesses the weakness of Jesus, he sees Jesus apparently, because he doesn't yet understand, powerless and helpless before the Jewish ruling council. In Peter's eyes, this must be a failed Messiah. And so he must be thinking there's going to be some demonstration of raw power, some might or force, maybe a battle miracle where Jesus will vindicate himself and they will all emerge victorious. Peter's in the courtyard and he's witnessing what's going on in the upper room. Life is crashing down around Peter. See, think about this for a second. What would Peter have thought at that moment faithfulness and loyalty would be about? Which leads me to some application for us, some lessons for us. Because obviously the scripture still considers what Peter did as sinful. He had to be restored. Remember John 21, Jesus is restoring him to himself. But there's some applications for us. First of all, we need to understand, do not assume or trust yourself that you completely and fully know what it means to be faithful to Jesus. See, assume about yourself in everything that you do not understand comprehensively, completely, what it means to be faithful or loyal to Jesus. We need to have a little bit of humility. We need to stop being so certain even if our own understanding of everything. See, know for a fact, the scriptures are true. 100% infallible and inerrant. But understand, your interpretation of them are fallible and errant. There's a difference between the scriptures and our understanding of the scripture. Why do you think week after week we pray a prayer of illumination? Isn't that an acknowledgement? Scriptures are true, my understanding needs to grow. We need to have a little bit of humility and a little bit of uncertainty. What does the proverb say? 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We get that part. What's the second part of that verse? Lean not on your own understanding. How much do we faithfully follow that? See, do we not recognize that Peter here thought he had a complete understanding of what faithfulness looked like, and a lot of times we have a complete, uh, you know, we think, we're certain, we understand what faithfulness looks like. But do you not recall what we looked at last week? How easy it is not only to lie to others, but how easy it is to lie to ourselves. We saw last week how the prophet Jeremiah affirmed the heart as deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That the human heart is a very dark place. Even as Christians, do we really understand the power of the sinful nature? See, I think one of the things going on here is Peter is living out in narrative form what Paul says doctrinally in Romans chapter 7, where Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. I don't know what you all think of the Apostle Paul, but I tend to think he's kind of like up here. He's kind of got a pretty significant, you know, I put myself like way, way under here. Paul has a pretty good understanding of things. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? Listen to his assessment of himself. And maybe compare it. Here's an application for us. Maybe compare it with your assessment of yourself. The apostle says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. Now, he's not saying my worth as a human being, an image bearer of God, because his next phrase is, that is in my sinful nature. Nothing good lives in that principle that is continually rebellious against God. For he goes on to say, and by the way, this next line is why I believe Paul is speaking as a Christian, not as a non-Christian. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good. See, I don't think if he was a non-Christian, he'd even have the desire to do what is good. But as a Christian, he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. In other words, I don't have the ability. So he says, I find this law, meaning this principle, at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Again, a Christian couldn't delight in God's law. Saying, in my inmost man, I find tremendous joy, freedom, delight in the law of God. But I happen to see another principle at work in the members of my body. Waging war. Listen to the language. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. See, what do we learn here? Tim Keller makes the point, he says, the Christian still has a powerful center of remaining sin within. It is a sinful nature. It is part of the nature or heart that, he says, seeks what I hate. This means that in himself he cannot. He doesn't have the ability he doesn't have the capability, the capacity to fulfill the law. In other words, there's a difference, again, between knowing you're a sinner and being broken over your sin. And see, one of the things we have to recognize kind of as a second lesson is don't ever think you've gotten so advanced that you don't struggle with sin. Listen to this quote by the theologian J.C. Ryle in his classic book, Holiness. He says, true Christianity is a fight. 
Do we find in our hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Then listen to this next line he writes. He says, well, Len, let us thank God for it is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. He writes, all true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. I say again, let us take comfort. The children of God have two great marks, that they may be known by their inward warfare as well as by their inward peace. Again, I say, failure is the divine plan. Because what is God showing us through our failure? See, I want to bring in one of the other accounts, Luke's account. There's a verse in Luke's account of Peter's denial of Jesus. It's Luke 22, verse 61, where it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So just before, Mark's telling us, Peter remembers the words before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He remembers those words, and he breaks down and he weeps. Luke throws in, here's Jesus, while being interrogated, looks, and he looks and sees Peter. I want you to imagine something and think about something. I know the text doesn't tell us this, but what do you think was the look in Jesus' eyes towards Peter? See, when, when you sin, when I sin, how do you picture Jesus looking at you? If you're a Christian, meaning you're in Christ, already justified, sins forgiven as far as the east is from the west, no condemnation, the Lord exulting over you with divine singing, the Lord, because and by virtue of your participation in the divine nature, being united to Christ, being well-pleased, what is the look in Jesus' eyes towards you? Don't you dare say it's judgment or shame or punishment. I believe his look is one of love. And love, yes, can be disappointed. It can grieve. It can hurt. Because there's the one he loves. He wants what's best for. He loves. He treasures. We are his treasured possession. Do you have a clue how important, how worthwhile, how valuable you are to the Lord of the universe? How does he look at us? He looks at us with love, and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. See, repentance is not about a Christian sin management program. It is not about moral self-improvement. It is about embracing what Jesus has done for us. Peter saw Jesus look at him, remembered his words, and he broke down and he wept. Certainly, we're not better than Peter. We deny Jesus all the time. Every time we sin, every time we fail to love, every time we fail to trust him, every time we live for our own glory rather than his glory, every time we assume we are so certain in just offending Jesus by our arrogance, Jesus gave himself for people like us who betray him, deny him, are faithless to him, are disloyal to him, 
who oppose him and his purposes, people like you and me. Father, I do pray that we would see the look in your eye towards us being because we're in Christ, you are well pleased with us. Help us to embrace that, to receive that. May we be gripped by that. And may we understand as we're coming now to the Lord's table that you invite us. This is not just simply a memorial, but that you are inviting us to fellowship with you. You are feeding us with yourself. You're the host of this meal, and you are the object of this meal. So, Father, I pray now that we would fellowship with you in Jesus' name. Amen.